Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is, I was going to say it's podcast time, but it's actually Kilkenomics time. Kilkenomics tickets are on sale from tomorrow. It is, it's always mad. You actually think, has a whole year gone since the last one? So if you are following us on Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams, you have the opportunity to get first dibs on those tickets today for the next 24 hours. They go on general release tomorrow, Friday to the rest of the world. Now, we have 50 events. We have economists from all over the world. We have some of the finest comedians. We have an amazing town, our city, the Marble City, which is Kilkenny. So it's basically 50 plus events, one city, three days, loads of crack, loads of ideas, loads and loads of late nights, and you will meet people at Kilkenomics that you've never, ever met before. There's going to be a whole host of podcast friends, families, people who've been on. John and I are doing a live podcast Friday evening in the Watergate Theatre, John, yet again, yet again. Fantastic, fantastic. A live podcast. And we really have loads of people. We also have, as part of the Kilkenomics brand this year, Kilkenomics X. I'm talking to Naomi Klein next Friday. And I'm talking to the author of a new book about Sam Bankman-Fried. You'll know the guy who went bust, the FTX, the huge crypto scam. Michael Lewis, author of The Big Short. And years and years ago, Moneyball, and even prior to that, Liar's Poker. I mean, Michael Lewis, one of the greatest, I would say, living chroniclers of financial markets, economics, and politics. I'm talking to him in St. Patrick's Cathedral in about a month's time. And then we have the home event, Kilkenomics, 2nd to the 5th of November in Kilkenny. Tickets out now. Go to kilkenomics.com. See the lineup. All sorts of carry on. We'll talk to you then, John. And you, John, are a Kilkenomics regular. You're a Kilkenomics. You're a recidivist. I certainly am. But I just absolutely love that weekend. It's always brilliant. Yeah, no, it's fun. And it's full of brilliant talks and and people. Actually, the kind of people you don't get to hear very often, apart, of course, from this podcast. Yeah, well, that's true. But I always come back with my head full of ideas. So full, actually, my hair hurts. (laughs) (laughs) You know? But actually, over the years, there have been some brilliant highlights and a few really big standouts. Like last year, there was Nassim Talab. Yeah, yeah. A couple of years ago, there was... Paul Krugman, the Nobel laureate guy. And actually, one that still sticks out in my mind, and I know we're going to talk about it later, but is Neil Howe. I think it was 2017, I can't remember. 2017, yeah, 2017. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was. But he really blew me away with the whole idea of the forward turning, with how generations kind of interact and clash and eventually reset, which I think was fascinating. Which is exactly what we're going to talk about in today's podcast, which is we're talking about Neil Howe's new book, which is The Fourth Turning Is Here. So we're going to be talking to Neil in a couple of minutes, actually, because that's going to be the basis of this podcast. And I mean, the, the thing about Kilkenomics, if you don't know, if you're if you're a first time listener, if you haven't been or if you thought, well, I might go to that. It's in Kilkenny first. And Kilkenny changes the vibe. But the main idea 
is that we get comedians to ask the questions and economists to answer the questions in the language of the people. And the great thing about comedians is they put manners on the economists, right? Because the comedians represent everybody. And if, if, for example, you have a, I don't know, like a Des Bishop asking the questions or a Colm O'Regan or whoever it happens to be, in a way it breaks down the barriers between economics, which takes itself very, very seriously, and the people who are actually very, very seriously affected by the decisions of economists. And the idea is to actually bring the whole thing together. It's a crazy idea when we came up with it many, many years ago, but it works amazingly well. And uh, if you are curious, if you are into a good time, if you want to hear the best minds in the world quizzed by the funniest geezers and lassies in this country, come to Kilconomics 2nd to 5th of November, Kilconomics.com tickets on general release from tomorrow, but to our beloved, special, valued Patreons, you get first dibs today. And if you want to get first dibs from the tickets, and they do go very quickly, join us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Now, John, you mentioned Neil Howe, and it blew your mind. And he has a fascinating way of looking at economic history. And it's a very, very different way. And I'm going to explain something before we start, right? John, the other day, I left this podcast saying, I'll see you at Mass. Do you remember? You did. We were talking you did. About, and you didn't we were, turn up. And I didn't turn up. I, didn't I was turn there, up, right? Mac. I was there. I know. You were there at the back. No, but the idea was, John, we were talking about that the monetary tabernacle is the mm. central bank. And you should look at the central bank like a church and the hocus pocus that goes with it, like the yeah. hocus pocus from religion. And the fact that basically, as long as people don't question whether money has value too much, the whole thing works extremely well. Yeah. A little bit like the host and the body and blood of Christ. All right. Today, I'm going to talk to you also about religion. I'm not changing. Don't worry. I'm not getting fundamentalists on you. But do you recognize these words, John? Do you recognize these words, right? To every time there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. Time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up, that which is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. Do these words resonate with you, John? Do you know these ones? Well, uh, unfortunately, yeah, because it is one of those readings that is used in a lot of funerals, and unfortunately, I've been to a lot of funerals this year. So unfortunately, yeah, it does resonate. Okay, so this comes from the book of Ecclesiasticals, right? It's the third book of Ecclesiasticals, the Solomon's book of Ecclesiasticals, right? King Solomon, right? Yeah. Allegedly the wisest of all men. Now, this is a fellow who had a lot in his mind because as well as recording a book of Proverbs that we're talking about here, he also had 700 wives, which would be taking your time. Yep. He, also had three, he had also had 300 concubines. Okay, so Man. whilst servicing all those duties, he still managed to write a book of Proverbs that became the Ecclesiasticals, which is in the Old Testament. Yeah. And that is from the Old Testament. I was fascinating for me about the Old Testament. I don't read it all the time, John, obviously, right? But what interests me is the wisdom and the sense of continuity that is in these books that were written about 10,000 years ago. I always also go on about Leviticus and Deuteronomy and debt forgiveness and the Jubilee year and all those sort of things. So I I find these type of fundamental scrolls of our culture, whether you accept them or not, and I'm not particularly religious, but I'm interested in the historical aspect of it. Absolutely, yeah, because it is fascinating stuff. And so what that well, that proverb, the, the, the one you hear at funerals, is all talking about is the relentless seasonality of life. So a time to grow, a time to die, a time to sow. So in the same way as summer is followed by autumn, is followed by winter, in the same way as you, you're born, you go through early life, you go through early adulthood, you go through midlife, yeah. then you get into elder life and then you die and the cycle starts again. In the same way as almost everything involving living organisms seems to have a cycle. And yeah. this is something a that... circle of life, as Elton John said. As well, when you quote Elton John and I... Quote, In that great I, Disney movie. Who, who may well have had as many concubines as King Solomon, who knows, <laughs> right? Anyway, my point is, John, and my point is, there are many ways of looking at history. And economics, in one way, has hijacked history, right? So economics, through money, has put a price on the future called the rate of interest. 
And the rate of interest and putting a price in the future, a monetary price in the future, which really became manifest in the early medieval age, right? Mm. And then became much more common as we go through the commercial age, which is the Dutch Republic and colonialism, and then industrialization, the industrial revolution. What actually it did was by putting a time value on money, what it forced us into thinking about was time in a linear way. This is, I think, something quite interesting that economics should get into but doesn't, which is the role of money in changing the way we think about the future. And we now think about history in sort of a this idea of time's arrow, that progress is building incrementally on incremental, and we're going forward at a gradual but clear, unique path, that history is linear. But what King Solomon is talking about is not that. He's talking about life being circular and seasonal and that everything has a rhythm to it. And these rhythms repeat themselves. And this repetition, as you say, is basically a biological fact. Okay. And this Mm. is why, you know, we have, we have, we have winter and then the leaves disappear from the trees and then they reemerge and all those sort of things. Right. And there are many people who look at economic history through these cyclical ideas, that basically all economic history is one large repetition of crisis, followed by rebirth, followed by maturity, followed by crisis, followed by rebirth, followed by maturity, right? History repeating itself. But also repeating itself in, in, in a sort of, not an absolute way, not in a way in which you can say, well, absolutely, tomorrow this is going to happen because this happened 100 years ago. Yeah, but okay. Saying like, how do we understand the fact that large societies seem to go through crises that seem to be quite well spaced, right? And Neil Howe talks about that in the fourth turning. And what he basically says, he's basically taking the essential, I go back to the Jesuits, right? The Jesuits have this expression, which is, you know, give me the child and I'll show you the man, right? And what they were basically saying is that people's experience in childhood and early childhood absolutely dictates who they become in the future. And therefore, what happens is every generation has an experience, a collective experience in our childhood. You and I have it being yeah. children of the late 60s, well, basically children of the 70s and into the 80s as we as we grew up. And those that world completely informed our worldview. And that makes us and our generational peers quite, quite similar in many, many attitudes because we experienced the world in a different way. Yeah. And then the kids who came after us, maybe they, the millennial kids, they experienced the, the world in a different way. And then the kids who came after them, they're called the Gen Xers, they experienced world in a different way. It was interesting, I was reading... A re- an article about Joe McCarthy, who's one of the young rugby players. And he was talking about him in 2012, 2013, 2014, watching the World Cup as a, as, as a kid, you know? And mm. you think the way he experienced the world, like let's say Irish people after the great crash, our generation experienced the world because many of our friends went bust. But their generation, the kids, their dads were going bust. Their yeah. moms were going bust. So they experienced the world in a very, very different way. And they then will bring that forward. So when they become the dominant generation, and the dominant generation is midlife, they will have a certain way of looking at the world which is completely different Absolutely. to us. Absolutely. And, and it's a bit like one of the worst things you could say to a kid. And I've learned this over time as a dad is, well, back in my day, you know, <laughs> And, and and we used to we used to rail against that as well when our parents used to say, well, you know, back in my day, we used to do this, we used to do that. And I find myself, I hear myself saying that to our kids and they're raising their and eyes to heaven. And because of course, they're a totally they're, different generation. Back in my day has no relevance to their Ex- world right here and right now. So imagine, right? Imagine. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So like everybody, every generation experiences a year differently. You know, I've always thought yeah. about, you know, you know, people think about, pick a, pick a thing, 1996. I was living in London. The Brits had the, the European Championship. Remember that Paul Gascoigne? It was Brit pop. The music was different. Yeah. It was rave yeah. culture. It's all that stuff going on, right? That's what I experienced the 90s as. These, these were a generation. This was a, a decade of great yeah. fun. This is our kind of, not so much coming of age, but we're adults, but we're young adults and we're having yeah, a total yeah. laugh. London right? days. Was, I, London days, all that yeah, sort of stuff. Yeah. But that's our generation's experience. Whereas the 1990s for 
younger people is completely different. They were children. For older people, it's it's a total hinge generation for Ireland. It's lots of people coming back to Ireland who, who weren't there in the past. All these sorts of, it's the mm. end of the Catholic Church. It's the beginning of economic growth in the country. But our generation experienced it as people who were just kind of first going out into the world. Yeah. And what Neil yeah. Howe breaks down, he says that every big cycle is in about one lifetime, which is about 80 years. So there's four type generations that live in that 80 years. And he talks about different archetypes. He talks about the hero generation, who are followed by an artist generation, who are followed by a prophet generation, who are followed by a nomad generation. And then they then spawn the next heroes, and they spawn the next artist, the next prophet. Explain each one of those, though. So what he's talking about largely in the United States is that he he says, like, for example, the GI generation in America, right? The the young men and women who fought the Second World War were an absolutely heroic generation. They were a generation that was born and forged in crises, in war, in experiences that no other generation, either side of them, really experienced, okay? They were also coming of age in the Great Depression. So they come of age in the Great Depression. They fight the Second World War. So those 30 years, imagine that between 1925 and 1945 are totally chaotic for them. Yeah. So what, they're, what they are, their life experiences as young, young men and women is totally different to anything else. They then give birth to the boomer generation in the United States. He kind of calls these an artistic generation, a generation that wants to talk about the world, that wants to change the world, et cetera. Okay. And uh, no, no, sorry, sorry, sorry. So the, so that GI generation, the generation that comes after that GI generation, not necessarily their kids, but in the sort of hinge period before them is what he calls the artistic generation. They are, they are, they want to explore things. They've seen war. They're not necessarily content with going along with the institutions. They want to change things. And then they spawn the prophet generation. And the prophet generation in the United States, again, are those what they were called those late boomers, right? Those people who were prophetic about the world. They wanted civil rights. They wanted to change the world. They wanted liberation. They wanted love. They wanted peace. They wanted, you know, the Beatles generation. Yeah. And then what comes after them are the nomad generation. And that's us. Okay. The yeah, creatures yeah. who are basically grown up in the seventies are kind of slightly nomadic, slightly, you know, if you look at our generation, we're not particularly well adjusted. <laughs> we're very badly adjusted, but we're not particularly well versed in politics are in massive industry or whatever. I mean, our generation is an unusual generation. He calls them nomadic generations. And then, of course, we are followed by the millennials who are a much more mollycoddled, a much more serious in many ways generation. Is that the truth? And then they have Gen Z, right? Which are basically our kids who are very, very different to us, which is why when you say, back in my day, they look at you and they say, Dad, that is inconsequential to me. Because my world is completely different. But but what Neil is Neil then saying that these heroic, you know, the the artistic, all those various different generations, those characteristics have been around before, like in Precisely. the in the seventeen hundreds, in the thirteen hundreds, in the whatever. That this is a a cycle. This is a that continuum. Happens. This is a cycle that happens, and it, it's it, again, it's not predictive, and it's not yeah. prescriptive. It's just observational. So you and had the, the molly coddled. You had the molly coddled generation yeah, molly, back in the eighteen hundreds, in the nineteen hundreds. We've been here before. Yeah, I, absolutely. You had molly coddled generations back in the back in the in the in the eighteen nineties. Uh, you had massive molly coddled generation. You know, so it's it's it is a fascinating thing. But what he says, the turning. So, so he says that basically. Each generation comes into its own in midlife, so between 40 and 60, when people are at the height of their powers intellectually, socially, financially. That's kind of the peak of their careers. And he says the turning is the change in control from one generation to the other. So, for example, our generation, what he would describe as nomads, our Gen X generation, right? We are now allegedly in control, which is terrifying for me. (laughs) But very soon, we will cede power to the millennials. And it's that turning is what he talks about. It's when when the lead generation that is formed, let's say, in the 1970s, who become the dominant political, economic, financial, moral, cultural force in their 50s, it's when they actually 
begin to retire and they cede power to the generation coming behind that you have this turning. And these turning events, he believes, are actually very monumental. And he also believes that the United States is in one of those turning events right now, which is that if you go back to, for example, the American Civil War and you add 80 years, which is four generations, you get to the Depression, the Second World War, and then you add another 80 years and you get to now. So all these turnings are characterized by mega crises at the end of these 80-year cycles. Right. And that's where we are now. So he's saying, look, if you want to understand why America seems unhinged and America seems slightly at edge, you've got to see it not through the perspective of a directional flow of history, but a circular flow of history. And part of that circular flow is this turning. And that's what it's about. And I find this really fascinating because it goes back to deep history and to understanding the the sense of seasonality in life. And I think that's where we will go and talk to Neil. Brilliant. Looking forward to this. But just for a minute, Neil Howe is the man who came up with the term millennials, right? So there's very few people in the world who've come up with a term for a generation that has stuck. He came up with it originally in a book called Generations that he wrote in the 19, early 1990s. And then he wrote the, the fourth turn in the late 1990s. And he is a demographic historian in America, an unbelievably brilliant mind, wonderful, wonderful guy. So let's go to the States and let's talk to Neil. If any of us or any of you have gone to the United States in recent years, you'll get a sense of a country at unease with itself, foreboding a sense of anxiety about the future, a sense of the place is at a turning point. And our next guest, Neil Howe, is going to explain to us that we are, or America is at a turning point, because his book, The Fourth Turning, which was a blockbuster bestseller written about 25 years ago with his collaborator, William Strauss, he has updated it for the, the Fourth Turning is here. Neil, how are you? And explain to me this anxiety in America and then how we understand it through your framework. David, uh, it's wonderful to be here, first of all. Well, look, I, I've been at this for a long time. The way historians usually look at history, we, we look at in any one year what everyone's doing at all ages, right? We have yeah. old people doing this. You have, you know, and, and it's usually about people around 55 to 65. They're the top leaders. So you're telling their story. Yeah. But what we wanted to do, we wanted to choose a particular generation, a particular group of people that were born at a certain time that had been socialized as children in a certain way, that came of age in a certain era, and that actually, as so many of the generation's thinkers, like Mannheim and Ortega Gasset, and so many of them said, actually develop a certain sense of commonality about themselves. You know, we're all sort of in the same boat. We've shaped the same way. We're experiencing the same things. We have sort of common attitudes and behaviors toward family, risk-taking, civic life, all the rest, right? And we wanted to tell their story. And, and the way we actually describe that is we, we, we say we're telling the history of America along the generational diagonal. But certain generations always follow other generations. For example, every time we have a strident, idealistic, institution-bashing generation like boomers, the next generation is like X you know, sardonic, cynical, pragmatic. And then the generation after that is typically the product of this moral panic. Like, what the hell is happening? Right. And this has happened again and again. And and so these are patterns, right? And actually, it was the fact that generations arrived in certain patterns, certain generations also follow others, that led us to explain why history itself arrives in patterns, right? So that gets us to the the whole topic of the fourth turning. So let's take this moment, let's take the present moment, Neil, and piece together all the various bits of the theory and, and, and explain to me where you think it goes from here. I want to talk geopolitics. I want to talk America's relationship with the world, but I want to first start internally, deep in the United States itself. So, typically, fourth turnings, as they develop, as we get into them, uh, people develop this new sense of community, right? And the, the problem is, is that, you know, United, we may be developing a sense of community. Our neighbors may be developing another new sense of aggressive sense of community, right? So you see that that leads to a possible problem there. Or it may be that they're 
two sides in America that are both developing a sense of community, right? And what happens at the climax of the fourth turning is very simple. One community wins. I mean, I hate to say it, it's pretty simple. Uh, and, and, it, and it engenders conflict. Every total war in American history has occurred in a fourth turning. And every fourth turning has had a total war. I guess that's a pretty tight correspondence right there. And typically what it does is that the fourth turning is a time in which we redevelop a sense of community. The awakening is when we tear community down. Let's just take a look at the seasonality of the entire saculum, right? The first turning, like the late 1940s, 50s, 1960s in America, these would have been the presidencies of Truman and Eisenhower and John Kennedy, were times of very strong institutions, weak individualism, everyone sort of conformed. The suburbs was a great symbol of the era, right? We all just fit in. And something William White talked about in his book, uh, The Organization Man, it's called The Social Ethic. Yeah. Everyone was taught to fit in. You know, boys were taught to be, you know, breadwinners. Girls were taught to be dutiful housewives. You know, everyone was taught to be obliging and fit into the system. And the result was we felt frustrated often individually, but we felt very powerful collectively. We felt that we were much more powerful than the sum of our parts. But it's interesting because back then, and you know, you you can understand that today's conservatives, you know, widow was kind of like the fifties. Uh, you know, it's a time when people obeyed the rules and people went to church and crime was low and doors were unlocked and all the rest. But I think it, what's interesting is that reasons why progressives today can feel genuine nostalgia for the fifties, civil rights was a huge and progressive issue back then. At the end of that period, America actually passed this enormous civil rights legislation, which guaranteed rights have been, you know, theoretically won by the Civil War, but never really been granted in, in, in much of America. And I wonder whether America would do that today. The average wage level was rising swiftly every year in real terms for the average American, much faster than it did today. Unions were strong back then. I mean, I'm thinking of all the issues where progressives would love it. Yeah. And education acts for retiring soldiers coming back and all that sort of totally. stuff. Totally. You know? The benefits were great. And most importantly, people actually did what the experts told them to do, right? All those men in white coats. I mean, progressives would love that world today. I mean, think about it. That What they really hate is, is red zone America, where no one obeys the experts, you know? So- here is a world in which increasingly it was not a world about inner perfection. It was a world about outer world performance. You know what I mean? And that's yeah, exactly absolutely. what America cannot do today. And that's exactly what we miss generationally, right? Because today, superintending America as elders and midlifers, I'm talking about boomers and Xers, are a bunch of individualists who couldn't organize themselves out of a shoebox. Right. And so you've got the natural organizers who are still young. They're not in power. They're the millennials. They, I mean, they love doing things in groups. You know, everything to them is, you know, I don't know, social entrepreneuring or social business, you know, whatever it is. They had the prefix social to make it sort of tame stuff, and domestic. Stuff we never heard because, about. We were that age. No, I mean, you guys were raised like a feral. I mean, you, you were like, a, <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, you're right. you, you never knew what that meant. So you see now where we are generationally. And, and, where we are is that awakening era is one in which the society tires of all the social discipline, but the people want less order. So the whole movement is a movement toward much less demand for order and making the system consistent with our desire for less order. So in the 60s, it began in, in college campuses and, and inner cities. We didn't want the patriarchy. We didn't want family authority. We, we didn't want anyone telling us what to do. And then finally, uh, that was mostly on the left. And then by the end of the era, it was tax cuts and deregulation and all this. You know, the right didn't want anyone to. We just became, in every respect, a less governed nation. During the fourth turning, it's the opposite. Society doesn't supply any order. And suddenly, people want more order. And that's what makes it a very different kind of period. The, the supply of order is low. The demand is rising. And in each case... It's the coming of age generation, which is most indicative of the new mood, right? Coming of age and the boomers, it was, I, we didn't want order. 
today, it's millennials coming of age, we want order. We want safety. We want security. We want an employer that tells us what to do, that gives us guarantees, which gives us, you know, what, what, what they call, you know, uh, uh, sort of achievement ladders and, and all this stuff. We, we want benefits. We want structure. What the hell's the matter with this country? You can't provide any structure. I mean, there, there's, we have no idea of national community anymore, right? And this is a complaint of the rising generation. So that is the differing generational sort of dynamics of a fourth turning as opposed to an awakening. And where does this end? Because I think it is, it's a very interesting point you make. And I see it quite a lot with my own children. You know, they, they come into family and they'd say to their mum and dad, now my father would never have said this to me, right? What should I do, dad, when I get older? And I'd say something like, do what you love. Now, my dad never mentioned love in his life in any capacity, right? To anyone about anything, right? But the idea that your dad, your dad would say, do what you love, you know, find your passion. In a way, if I say that to my kids, you're not taking responsibility. They don't want to be told do what they love. They want to be told, give us a structure. Give yeah, me a exactly. plan. Coupled with a kick up the arse, get out there and get a job. Kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's I mean, the tough love. <laughs> John knew my dad from a very young age. Imagine Des McWilliams saying, do what you love, son. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, let's go to the end. How does this all end? Well, let me go back to this whole point about these different communities forming, right? Because fourth turning is when we develop communities. Well, the problem is we are developing the stronger sense of community. Uh, millennials are living at home with their boomer dads and moms. I mean, you know, everyone, extended families are all becoming back into vogue. Uh, communities and at the local level, in many ways, becoming stronger. But the problem is these new communities don't add up to a national community. For instance, in America, one of the big communities, two communities politically, that really started bifurcating just severely after 2016, Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump election was blue zone versus red zone to the point now where it's just become a huge problem in America. You know, nine out of 10 voters think if the other side wins, it will permanently ruin America. I mean, it's not even an election anymore. If the other side wins, my God, I ain't going to consider revolution or something. I, I can't accept this. I, I can't go along with even a democratic decision here. So the one obvious problem when you have this resurgence of community is that you have two communities which hate each other, right? Which have mutually exclusive visions of the future, mutually exclusive values. Uh, today, it's red zone, blue zone. Back in the 1930s, it was FDR versus non-FDR. You know, FDR and the Popular Front that supported him believed that the 1930s was the fascist decade, right? But if you look at FDR's opponents, they thought the 1930s was the red decade. Communist <laughs> decade, exactly. Because there were two forces in the world, you know, after the great crash, and that was the only two options that the West had. It either was going to all become fascist or communist, because clearly liberal democracy was failing and capitalism was dead. I mean, we were either going to go one way or the other, right? And, and it was kind of odd. And I want to come back to this too, because the idea that eventually... The fourth turning climaxed with World War II is sort of unbelievable in retrospect. If you had gone and asked, and this is one problem that historians often have, we already know how it turned out, right? So if you go back, we often think, oh, well, it had to end that way. But if you had gone back in 1937 and asked a typical American, if you just simply said, look, I want to tell you something, we're going to have a big, huge war, you know, in not very long What's it going to be about? I think most of the people would say, well, I guess communists and fascists in America. I mean, we already had communists and Pinkertons on the sit-down strikes. We already had violence in the streets back then. And as for external war, young people, you know, the so-called GI generation later became called the greatest generation on college campuses. These young people were still signing Oxford pledges. The Oxford pledge, which began in, in England, which was a pledge that you signed saying that if my country went to war, I would not serve in the military, right? And they were very popular on Yale campus, on Stanford campus, on Harvard. All of these young people were signing it. And it was obviously the memory of World War I, right? Which everyone regarded as a horrible catastrophe, right? 
Wilson lied and people died. I mean, that was everyone's yeah. memory of World War I, right? Now, in the Civil War, and Abraham Lincoln, even in the late 1850s, he already predicted it. He said, um, a nation divided against itself cannot stand. In a few years, we will have a crisis and America will either be all one thing or all another. And that's the point, right? By the end of the crisis, you need to become all one thing or all the other. And this is a beautiful phrase, actually, right? But every one of these fourth turnings has a civil war dimension. My, my point is that there, there's always an internal division as well as an external division. And interestingly enough, even in a pure civil war, uh, one side or the other always wants to bring in a foreign player, right? So that's the other complexity, right? Even when you think, well, it's purely internal, well, internal always becomes external. All of America's fourth turnings has elements of both internal division and external war. And you see both elements today because will America have a civil war? Now that question, 10 years ago, no one even asked it. It seems so outlandish, so outside the radar screen of anything possible. No one even asked that question. Today, about half of Americans think it's very likely in the next few years. So that just shows you how that's come out of nowhere, right? And on the other hand, we see all these new threats of geopolitical war, right? And, and in that respect, as in so many others, David, we're reliving the 30s. That's my point. We got into this era, the huge balance sheet global depression, recession slash, you know, crash. You know, it started October 24th, 1929. It was a great crash. It quickly spread around the world. And then we saw the same thing in the GFC, you know, at, at the end of 2008. And it's spread and it's changed politics, it's changed economics. We saw the, the apogee of the share of the world that was run by free governments, according to VDAM and Freedom House, was in 2007. It's been declining ever since, right? Wherever you look, right? And, and so that has changed. The share of global trade as a share of global product peaked in 2007. It's been declining ever since. It's been declining now rapidly because of sanctions after the Ukraine invasion. So you've seen all these respects very similar to the 30s. And another thing you saw in the 30s, and that was younger generation driven to be a generation that wanted to vote for a new sense of community, right? The GI generation that came of age in the 30s were all about community. They wanted to serve in groups. That's why they made such great soldiers during World War II. I mean, they, they, they loved the New Deal. Over 80% of Americans who were first-time voters in 1932 and 1936 voted for FDR. That's an amazing statistic. But it, it's, it's interesting you see these things played again and again. What about the extension of multi-generational families? In America, we look back, and, and I think these are pretty famous around the world. It's the Frank Capra movies of the 1930s. They were associated with the Depression. These are movies like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. You can't take mm -hmm. it with you. These are great movies. And you notice in these movies, which all came out in the late 30s, they show all kinds of generations living in these big Victorian homes. Why? Because no one was building new homes in the 30s. It was a Great Depression, right? Today, it's the same thing. It's just McMansions. And again, you find we're at the opposite ends of the awakening. During the 1970s, during our awakening, the average number of people per household declined at a faster rate than any other decade in American history. No one wanted to live together in the 1970s. All the old people were moving into senior communities in the Southwest. You know what I mean? <laughs> because they wanted yeah. to get away from their boomer kids. They hated them. You know, their boomer kids are all about selfishness and self-gratification. These were the, the senior citizens, right? They came of age with D-Day, and they just wanted to move to some really nice place, age-restricted communities, right? Where young people weren't even allowed to move nearby, okay? And they could listen to their Benny Goodman music. They didn't have to listen to those goddamn Rolling Stones and Beatles and all this crap that was coming out, right? Okay. So, okay. So, so that was that. And then, of course, it was the decade of divorce. And that was the silent generation, all divorcing their, their, you know, Woody Allen and getting into all this, you know, psychological problem. But they were all divorcing, right? And then boomers were like leaving for Wheeler Ranch Commune or something, right? They were actually going, you know, hitching on the road or something. No one wanted to live with anyone. And now everybody's living together. 
And now everyone's living together again. I see the whole thing. I mean, Neil, what I want to do to conclude is from where you're sitting, from everything you've studied, from all the connections you've made, is this a trepidatious period where the possibility of war is there? Civil war, internal conflict, as you said, infected by external conflict? Or is there another possible avenue out of this which doesn't involve the catastrophes? And we start again. Both. I hate to say, but both. Uh, One is required for the other. We are going to go through a a great gate of history, but you got to pay the toll to get there. I hate to say, David, that's kind of how it works. You don't reforge community on a sunny day. Very true. You know, that's kind of how it works. People need to be re-socialized, and it's not a pleasant experience. I, in, in one chapter in the book, chapter eight, and it really is about how America changes socially. And I talk about some of these big changes, but along the way, I quote uh, William James, who gave a very interesting speech at Stanford University. And now William James is interesting for a lot of reasons. And one is he said he was a pacifist. But he was very realistic about the power of war to forge people into citizens. He wrote a speech called The Moral Equivalent of War. I mean, if you ever want to know where that phrase comes from, a moral equivalent of war. It comes from his speech at at Stanford in, in, in 1906. And he, first of all, went down through all of the great benefits that war offers in bringing nations together. Uh, The ability of people to endure privations, to sacrifice for the group, to put aside, you know, their their selfish life interest and really believe in their community and to actually construct powerful institutions which bind their community together. And then he kind of says, well, you know, might it be possible that we can have some equivalent that wouldn't actually require war to do that. But at the end of the speech, he actually is sort of, I, you know, if, if we don't do that, I'm afraid, you know, we'll always need war. But this is what's fascinating. Near the end of the speech, he asked his audience, how many of you would rather the Civil War had never happened? Now, keep in mind, this is 1906. Many of his audience, older members, would have- Sure, we're still alive. Been, been through the war, right? Yeah. And, and everyone else would have been the kids of the war. And he said, I'm almost sure that almost none of you would say yes, because none of you can imagine the sense of progress, unity, industrialization, right? Sort of national power that America has today without having gone through the Civil War. He took it for absolute granted that everyone in the audience would say, well, it's a good thing we had that Civil War, right? But if I asked you, he said, this is the paradox, he said, if I asked you, would you want another such catastrophe, you know, a few years from now? And I'm sure all of you would say no. And isn't that interesting, David, the paradox, right? Absolutely. So in other words, I think we all understand this, right? And and so here's what I'm trying to say, is that the saculum, which is what we call the cycle of generations, the cycle of attorneys, is a complex system which takes society to places they don't always want to go, but that they have to go, they need to go in order to to survive, in order to thrive long-term. And that there are all kinds of processes in nature which aren't pleasant, but we need. You know, forests need fires, rivers need floods. I mean, they're just things that need to happen. Societies need times at which they become socialized again to become communities. And these fourth turnings are the cauldron for that. But the good side is, is on once we forge that community, we become a very different place and a much more integrated and effective society on the fourth turning on the other side. And we can solve national and global problems. It would have seemed unimaginable before the solution, right? Problems that today we look at, like... um, like global warming or nuclear proliferation or, you know, all of these things we think absolutely we can't do. And, you know, nation building. And this is a good one because I often think, you know, today with boomers and Xers, you know, no one can be a nation builder. You know, I mean, look what America tried to do in Iraq, you know, complete failure. You know, who, whoever think, well, it turns out that just after World War II, 
There was a lot of nation building going on on a big scale, and it was pretty damn effective, right? What did the Allies do with South Korea, Germany, Japan? If that wasn't nation building, I don't know what it was. Yeah, absolutely. And it turns out that these were effective liberal democracies for decades. And, and, and it's amazing. Today, we have this sense of utter despair at our ability to do anything. Like nation building has almost become this sarcastic. As you said about America, it's not just nation building. Trying to get a bill through the Senate, you can't. Okay, forget <laughs> yeah. about building a bloody nation, you know? <laughs> not exactly. But, but that's my point, right? From today's perspective, even the most feeble act of sort of civic creativity just seems utterly impossible and exhausting, right? But imagine an era when those things would just be completely uncontroversial. You do it, you do it very quickly. And, and interestingly enough, and, and this is what happened in the 1950s in America, is the two parties actually became increasingly similar until by the late 1950s, most Americans are complaining they didn't even know the difference between the two parties. I mean, they seem to be, you know, tweedledee, tweedledum, right? But but it's, and then by the time you get to JFK and Nixon, the only difference was one guy shaved and the other guy didn't before the TV debate. <laughs> the that other guy the sweated a little bit more. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this, uh, is the, uh, this, is, this has been fascinating. And we could go for hours and hours and hours. But look, it's an amazing way of looking at history. The book is The Fourth Turning is Here by my guest, Neil Howe. It's been a wonderful trip around the houses through the decades, through the centuries, giving us a framework to look at the world as we see it right now. Neil, an absolute pleasure. Wonderful to talk to you. Wonderful to talk to you. And we'll see you again soon. Thank you so much, David. As always, <laughs> pleasure and entertainment. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. In manufacturing, you need to automate intelligently to compete effectively. But not all automation solutions are created equally. AGVs and AMRs driven by Bluebotics Ant technology offer robust, accurate performance and native interoperability. Because your material handling can be smarter. Visit antdriven.com. That's antdriven.com to learn more. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food. Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Uh, I, I, as I said, when I heard him in Kilconomics in 2017, he was fascinating then and he's even more fascinating now because it's kind of even more prescient now, this whole idea. And well, it's a, know, such an unusual way of looking at history and, and the turning of history. Yeah, and economic history and how demography and history and politics all mesh together. I mean, what has always intrigued me is the way in which economists typically explain what's happening in the United States. They talk about industrialization. They talk about China. They talk about globalization. They talk about commerce. We talk about commerce. We talk yeah. about the split between labor and income. We talk about populism. We talk about all these sort of 
almost undergraduate explanations of the way the world works based on there being an average American or an average Irish person. And what Neil is saying, there is no average person. There are bunches and collectives of individuals who are experiencing the world in a different way based on their lifestyle and not so much much based on their life experience, right? And therefore making decisions based on... Making decisions, making... And so if you want to understand what's going on now in the States, a way of looking at it is that what you're seeing is generational collision rather than one overarching experience and you're seeing generations rub up against each other. And when they rub up against each other and one generation cedes power to the next, that's when you get the turning. And that's when you get the sense of crisis because generations are condemned to actually fight each other rather than go along with each other. And maybe that's a great explanation of what you're seeing in the United States as we head into, John, a presidential election year where all that culture war that we see, economists try to explain it from the perspective of economics, money, finance, taxes, etc. But what Neil is saying, no, look at it from the perspective of generations. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now.